The Energy Gang is supported by GE. GE is getting serious about energy storage. The Energy Giant has a new energy storage system called Reservoir. It's modular, it's durable, it's flexible, it slashes construction costs. You can use Reservoir for any kind of grid need. We'll hear more later in the show about how Reservoir works. If you want to see for yourself right now, go to ge.com slash energy storage. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on energy, clean tech, and the environment. I'm Stephen Lacey. Welcome. So we asked a pretty simple question last week. Are we making progress? And just a few days later, a panel of international experts gave a simple answer. No. The IPCC just issued another clear update to the climate picture. We are only 12 years away from locking in extreme warming, and we're not even close, not even remotely close, to slashing climate pollution in the way we need to. So this week, the dire state of the planet, according to a group of the world's most prominent scientists. I promise, I promise you will find some areas of optimism in that conversation. Then, Orsted, the Danish mega energy producer, is buying a leading American offshore wind developer, What does it say about the coming rush of offshore activity in this country? And finally, over to biofuels. President Trump is asking the EPA to lift restrictions on higher ethanol gasoline blends in the summer. The farmers love it. The oil industry hates it. And debate rages about the public health impact. Welcome to the gang. Hope you all are settled in after our live show last week. Jigger, how you doing? I'm crushing it down here in wet, soggy Washington, D.C., (laughs) What are you crushing? Well, you know, it's just, it's one of those things where you sit in your house, you know that the solar panels are on, you got the battery backup. I had a power outage the other day and the batteries kicked on. Feels very comforting. I bet it does. That's great. I thought for a second maybe you were talking about like crushing cans against your head. (laughs) No, that's that's reserved for power lifters like you. (laughs) Jigger Shah is the president of Generate Capital. He is in the Washington, D.C. area. Catherine Hamilton is the co-founder and chair of 38 North Solutions. She's also there in D.C. Boy, has she had some technical challenges. Her computer basically blew up this morning, and she's joining us via Skype from her home there in Virginia. Hi, Catherine. Hi, and I'm using a very sketchy iPad that belongs to one of my kids, and he is not happy about it, but he had to go to school, so too bad. (laughs) We're a little DIY here at the Energy Gang. Sophisticated conversations, but sometimes we have to uh, pull it together by a thread if we have technical challenges. Um, Your computer has had challenges. It finally blew up. It sounds like you probably loaded the IPCC report and your computer was like, screw this. I've had enough of these. Y'all can deal with this problem on your own. Yeah, that's exactly what happened. (laughs) So some genius from Apple is going to have to help me through that one. All right. Well, let's pull up that report on your iPad and discuss it, shall we? For two years, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change uh, has been working on a new analysis. The mission, you know, we got this quasi-global climate deal in 2015, so it was time to assess our current and projected emissions pathways and compare it to the latest science. So this report notifies us of the latest science, what uh, the planet will look like under different degrees of warming, and, uh, and then what those emission pathways need to look like through the middle of the century to either prevent uh, 1.5 degree C warming or 2 degree C warming. I don't think it's any surprise to our listeners. The conclusion of this report was not 
good. Catherine, what were the top line messages from this latest report? Yeah, so one thing they spent a lot of time doing was comparing 1.5 degrees centigrade to 2 degrees centigrade. And there's like a 50% difference there. It's 50% worse at least. And so they focused on how can we keep it to one and a half degrees? And they really think we can. And remember, this is, as you kind of teed up, over 90 scientists from 40 countries looking at 6,000 studies. 195 countries have been involved in this process since 1988. Uh, that was a joint U- United Nations Environment Program and World Meteorological Organization effort. And they show that, yes, the findings are dire. However, there are things that they say we can do. There is still hope. Every single bit that we do helps. We can't just look at you know, option A, B, or C. We have to do all the options. So not just our shoulders, but using our hips and legs. We got to do everything. But we don't need to reinvent the wheel. They clearly said we have technologies right now that we can deploy. We just have to do it faster. We also have to make sure that on generation, land use, cities, and industry, that we all of those sectors move forward um, with speed and um, in in a way that is co- that provides some complementary solutions to each of those sectors. So the report is new. It's based off of new analysis of the post-2015 framework and the state of technology today. But the conclusions are roughly the same as they always have been. This is a crazy serious problem. We have most of the technologies that we need to get to, but the emissions pathways are incredibly steep and difficult, but still doable. Um, Is there anything different about this report, Catherine, than, than previous assessments? Well, I feel like what they did was the tone was taken that, look, if we really put sustained Um, policies and sustained investment, what we can do is have good options and good outcomes through climate mitigation and adaptation. So we can really, you know, help eradicate poverty. We can really help sustain development. We can mitigate the risk. And the risk is very much dependent on the magnitude of the change, the rate of change, the geography that you are in, the the level of development or your vulnerability as a community, and then what choices that we make in these mitigation and implementation technologies. And it just showed that, you know, they are focused on what are the solutions and how do we move forward in a way that really creates synergies and a positive feedback loop so that as we start implementing solutions, that those can get us further down the road. Jigger, your response to the report, um, does does a report like this make you feel any differently about the problem or the solution set? Should it make anyone feel differently? Well, when I read the report, it felt like a transcript of the Energy Gang podcast. (laughs) In what way? (laughs) Well, we've been saying the same thing the whole time, which is we're not moving fast enough. But that the technologies that that we have today are profitable and could scale and could actually meet the the need, right? The other thing I found quite fascinating about this is that no one at a governmental level has been talking about 1.5 degrees forever. I mean, the Obama administration in Copenhagen was like, screw 1.5 degrees, we're talking about 2 degrees, right? And so the fact that they basically said, okay, now we're talking about 1.5 degrees, and we have to do it in 12 years was not surprising to me, because we've always been talking about two degrees. Right. And and, and in that respect, the report is kind of hopeful, 
because they're saying like, look, there's a lot of hard choices that we need to make. This is an extreme reversal. If you look at the chart of her emissions pathways over the next uh, 20 years, I mean, we need to get to net zero emissions globally in the late 2030s, early 2040s. Like, it's just it's just crazy. But they do sound a slightly optimistic tone in that they're talking about this problem as something that can be achieved. Now, of course, we all know that the realities of how countries operate and governments function will not put us on that pathway. I am not optimistic at all. But we are still at a point where we can have a legitimate discussion about 1.5 degrees Celsius. So there's a sliver of optimism in that context. You know, what they, I think they laid out is the difference between a 1.5 and 2 degree scenario in disease, drought, famine, sea level rise, water and food security, climate refugees. They show that there is much there are much worse outcomes if we if we hit two degrees rather than one point five. And they so what they're trying to do is get us, I think, to focus on look, we can do this. We have twelve years to really put everything into it to get there. It's possible. If we don't do it, you know, there are a lot of bad things that are gonna happen. There are a lot of bad things that are happening anyway. But I think what this does is it says, look, we can do it. We're not just throwing up our arms and saying it's impossible. But Catherine, am I wrong about the way this is rolled out? I mean, wasn't it the case that all of the governments around the world signed a letter saying that we are going to commit ourselves to two degrees in 2009 at Copenhagen? And then Bill McKibben said, screw that. We have to be at 350 parts per million, not 400 parts per million, which is 1.5 degrees. And then he's been like rattling the saber on 1.5 degrees. And then suddenly out of nowhere, everyone's talking about 1.5 degrees. Well, I think what they're finding is that in all of these sustainable development goals that were put together following Paris, and there's 17 of them that look at, you know, everything from poverty to hunger to economic growth, clean energy, water, et cetera, that there are so many synergies between all of these different sustainable development goals. And as policies start rolling out, there's I think they're seeing that there's actually a possibility of mitigating below too. Now, you know, I agree it's hard to foresee it, but I think one of the big mistakes is that people just throw their arms up. And this was embedded in a report that the White House put out, the Trump White House put out about car emissions were buried in that report. It said, you know what, we're going to get seven degrees Fahrenheit uh, increase anyway, so we might as well not even bother. Well, that's not what we want to have happen. We want people to see that there are ways that we can we can solve this and that we just have to we have to put our minds and our will into it. Well, but like my angle on my angle on this is that this is like this this entire report feels like it's not part of the continuum. It's actually made directly in response to Trump. But like every single world leader since 09 has said that 1.5 degrees is impossible since 09. There's not been a single world leader who said that anything better than two degrees was even possible. For, so for them to just sort of reset it to for dramatic effect seems ridiculous. Well, it doesn't seem that ridiculous to me because they're saying that they're, they're pretty clear that it we're, we're, we're pretty much fully baked into 1.5 degrees C, right? We're, we're there. We have 10 years, 12 years to maintain the 1.5 degree C temperature rise. So look, they're taking an optimistic tone and saying it's possible. But in reality, 
it's likely that we're going to go over 1.5 degrees C. And I think most scientists, policymakers, analysts believe that to be true. Well, and the goal of Paris, the long term goal was, yes, to keep the increase in temperature below. It said well below two degrees centigrade and to limit the increase to one and a half degrees centigrade, because that would substantially reduce the risks and effects of climate change. And I think that's what this report is showing is, yes, it would. And here's what it would look like at one and a half. And here's what it would look like at two. And I think that's what they're trying to get at, because both of those numbers were in the Paris Agreement. Now, there's one piece of this that I'm kind of optimistic about, and that is the scenarios for global renewable electricity. So the IPCC generally says that we need uh, about 70 to 85% of our global electricity supply to come from renewables by 2050. I think most people believe that we can hit that target. And I remember back in 2014, the International Energy Agency issued a report looking at how the globe could get about 50% of its electricity supply from just solar alone by 2050. And since then, costs have dramatically fallen, and the we've, we've surpassed the yearly installation figures that it would take to hit the targets that IEA outlined. So we're headed in the right direction in terms of global renewable energy supply. With that said, we're still investing a fraction of the money that we need to to hit those bigger numbers. According to Bloomberg New Energy Finance, we're probably at a you know a couple hundred to three hundred billion dollars a year in investments, and we need you know two to three trillion dollars a year in investments. Now there's a caveat to that. Of course, costs continue to fall. So you can do more and deploy more with lower investment figures. But still, uh, we need to be in the trillions of dollars per year. Right. But the trillions is not hard to get to. Right. I mean, that's the thing that I think people just have a hard time imagining is everyone thinks so linearly. People have a really hard time thinking exponentially. If you're at $300 billion last year and you grow that number by 15% a year, Every year for 12 years, this scope of this 1.5 degrees, that's $10.5 trillion that gets invested. So like, it's not like, it's not a difficult thing to get to the trillions of dollars using exponential growth curves, which is what we've been on, frankly, for the last five years. So I don't think that that's impossible to envision. I think it's just impossible for most people to wrap their brains around. But we just gave a two drip. Two trillion dollar tax cut to rich people and corporations in this country alone. So there, there's money out there, and I think one of the keys is that it doesn't take that much to help on the adaptation side for underdeveloped countries. So you can do a lot with a little bit. And there's lots of private capital out there, like Bill Gates's fund and a lot of other ones that are looking for partnerships. And I think having public-private partnerships is going to be really crucial to this because I don't. You know, you just don't know the pace at which a lot of governments, especially the U.S., are going to put forward funding. But there's a lot of private capital out there, too. I agree. There's no lack of money. I mean, even today, there's no lack of money. And so whether they give $2 trillion of tax benefits or not to people, there's still no lack of money. Like raising money for us and for others is not a problem. The challenge is actually getting enough projects to fund, right? I mean, all of these projects that the IPCC are talking about have to go through the permitting process. They have to get approved by the utilities. They have to get approved by legislators. They have to get approved by, you know, governing bodies. And that's the part that is slow, right? The actual raising of the money is fast. 
I'm looking at two charts here, and I'm referencing a uh, a Vox story on the IPCC report. Um, one is from Fatih Biral, who heads up the International Energy Agency, and he shows uh, that we're seeing continued incremental increases in global emissions. And he says that CO2 emissions will just continue to increase in 2018 and beyond. And then I'm looking at another chart from the IPCC report showing what we need to do to stabilize temperature rises at 1.5 degree C or even get us above that but below 2 degrees C. And you see at around 2020... Uh, this crazy steep drop in emissions that we need to see that will get us to net zero emissions uh, between 2040 and 2055. You look at this chart and it makes me roll my eyes. It's like, I I don't see, you know, you compare these two charts and it's just impossible to see how the world can get there with, you know, the conventional technologies that we have today. So the the money's flowing in. I think we can get to that 85% uh, a renewable electricity number globally. I, I do believe, based on what I'm seeing, that that's doable. But when you look at uh, emissions across the globe, across different sectors, this steep decline is sort of laughable. <laughs> it would be funny if it weren't so serious. And so then you get into this bigger conversation about CCS. And CCS just is not economically viable. It is a very hairy technology. But when I look at these graphs, I think as a taxpayer, I'm going to be willing to accept a lot of failures like the Kemper project in Mississippi here, that botched CCS project that cost you know billions of dollars and ultimately just became a natural gas-fired power plant. Um, I think, generally speaking, I'm willing to accept the risk to start having governments invest in these bigger CCS projects, but we because we can't even get close to these targets without a crazy investment in uh, carbon capture, all sorts of carbon capture. Well, but if we look at where coal is now, so over 40 plants have shut down since Trump was elected president. And if it stays at this place, 100% of the coal plants in the U.S. will have closed by 2035. So that's a big chunk of it. I was yesterday in Indianapolis at the um, Mid-Continent Independent System Operator presentation, MISO. Um, It was an Indiana Energy Conference. And MISO has gone from 76% of coal in 2005 to less than 50% in 2017, and it continues to drop. It's going to get into the 30s. And 90% of their interconnection queue is solar and wind, 90%. That's in the Midwest part of the United States. That's in coal country. So I I actually think that, you know, coal is going to phase out. Now, what we're going to have to do, governments around the world are going to have to not build any more coal plants. And yes, you're right. We're going to need to invest in all kinds of technologies. I just think that, you know, we're on a good we're on a good trajectory in the U.S., regardless of what our federal government wants to do. Right. I, I completely agree. But think about China, right? China has become a world leader in solar. They're building a decent amount of nuclear plants. They're a world leader in wind. They're now the world leader in electric buses. They're doing all the right things, but they're still building out a ton of coal plants and their industry continues to grow. China needs to be a world leader in CCS along with those other technologies. And the imbalance 
is a huge deal, right? They can continue investing in all those other technologies, but not make a massive dent in their emissions as their economy grows, even if their economy just starts growing incrementally. So um, that is a huge piece of the picture, not just here in the U.S., but in massively industrializing countries like China. But I don't understand where your concept of conventional comes from, right? I mean, there are so many technologies that we have today that are mature in some parts of the world, but not others that can scale up very quickly that save gargantuan amounts of money. I mean, that those technologies alone can meet most of what we need to do over the next 12 years. And so this, while CCS is required to hit our 2050 targets, they're not required to hit the targets over the next 12 years. And in fact, there is no data to support that China is building out a lot of net new coal capacity. In fact, they're generally retiring more coal than they are building new coal. So like, I, I mean, mostly because China doesn't want to import coal from Australia. So you're absolutely right that China has canceled a ton of coal plants, largely due to local pressure because of air pollution, but also because they're starting to think about climate change. But I'm looking at a coal swarm report Coal Swarm is a group run by environmental groups. They published in September of this year warning that over 250 gigawatts of coal capacity is still planned in China despite restrictions on government policies. Now, that's just planned, so we don't know exactly what will get built, but there's still a bunch of coal on the table in China. No, there's not. It's not gone. It's not. There were 450 gigawatts of it five years ago. India still has 100 gigawatts planned, but they have no water capacity by which to cool the plants. The first air-cooled plant in the developing world is in South Africa, and that plant is still not constructed. And so I just think the notion that like all these people are going to put in technologies that they can no longer afford nor can they actually support ecologically, is ridiculous. And so, fine, there's some bureaucrat who put 250 gigawatts on a spreadsheet. Now we're all going to be up in arms. I just think the notion that we're going to go backwards on electricity is crazy. And we do have the, the technology on conventional sources, whether it's energy efficiency or renewable energy, or even a lot of the waste to energy facilities. Like, for instance, it's commonplace in Europe to take waste, turn them into pellets, and co-fire those pellets with cement kilns and steel plants. It's not commonplace here in the U.S. or in China. But those technologies could be rolled out pretty quickly because Lafarge and some of these large companies know how to do them. So what did you all think about the media coverage of the report? The report was two years in the making. It's a legitimate attempt to take stock of where we are on climate change. But of course, it has um, implications for communications, right? Like the scientists want the press to cover this, to discuss the urgency of the problem. Here in the United States, particularly in television news, we have a real problem with grappling with these reports. We tend to cover them as one-offs and then we move on. Um, Television news largely doesn't give that many minutes to climate change or the IPCC. Um, You have a bunch of you know, online articles, hair on fire articles saying we're all screwed and then we kind of move on. There was a lot of great coverage mixed with uh, frustrating coverage or lack of coverage. What did you think about the totality of how people are treating this report? Catherine? Yeah, so of course I pick and choose what I read. So I'm not looking at all of the news. I'm looking at what I'm interested in and what you send me to read in preparation. So of course I'm going to be focusing on this, but there just seems to be so much more chatter about this. 
there's more chatter on Twitter. There's more chatter on mainstream press there with all of the natural disasters, the fires, the tsunamis, the hurricanes. There is just so much conversation about what is happening to our globe. And then we also had the big Nobel Prize announcement uh, of William Nordhaus and Paul Romer, who have been studying CO2 and technology innovation and macroeconomics. So that was pretty exciting, too. So that got a lot of pickup. Jigger, your perception of the coverage, good or bad? There was literally nobody in my circle that read anything about this. I don't think there was any coverage about it in mainstream media. And my sense is by like tomorrow, there will be no further coverage about this story. I mean, it's just this was such a poorly crafted story that only scientists could screw up. It's like literally like instead of talking about the extraordinary progress that we've made in all these areas, they come out with a doomsday report that basically every psychologist on the planet has said just shuts people down. There's no wonder that no mainstream media folks want to cover this thing. I think that this is just literally the worst like the worst rollout of a report I've seen in ages. Wait, 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 wait. First of all, I don't think it was a total doomsday report because they outline a bunch of emissions pathways and they talk about how much improvement we've seen in technologies and like that we actually have the technologies to get us over the next 20 years at 1.5 degrees C temperature rise. Like, I think that sounds an actual optimistic yeah, note. buried on page 356. The headline of this report was, we have to cut our emissions in 12 years, and this was a doomsday report. I mean, that's how this was covered in our, like, little circle on Twitter, et cetera. But, like, my parents, I talked to them twice in the last two days. They didn't bring it up. Like, nobody on my Facebook page, which are mostly high school students that I went to college with or went to high school or college with, no one brought it up. No one no one posted on it. I think most people are talking about the blue wave. I listened to Pod Save America, who finally covered this. It was literally the worst coverage I'd ever heard. All of their ideas were ones that we came up with in 2008 that the Obama administration never pursued. I mean, it was just it it makes it makes someone so disheartened to see that, like, in this Trump era, like no major um, news stories like this get more than like two days of coverage. So I did not listen to the Pod Save America podcast. I did see a clip that was shared on Twitter, and they essentially said, "Hey, if you have a, if you have a concern about the IPCC report, go vote." There's a, there's a party that's taking it seriously. There's a party that's not. I think that's a fair message. But again, I didn't listen to the totality of the conversation. But this is what I'm saying. This has been fully studied. The Yale six. Six America's report already shows that the total number of Americans in this country that are scared are about 15%. So they told 15% of Americans to vote. The rest of the of America shuts down. They just say, we're not even going to talk about this. It's like being in a bad relationship. You just sort of like bury it somewhere and just deal with it, right? Like in general, when you have bad news, people want to be inspired by what America can do. They want to be inspired by moonshot stuff. They want to be inspired by how our technology and our innovation and our can-do attitude can actually remake the world. And instead, we're actually pushing these agendas that are not that. Remember, we had that from the Apollo Alliance back in 2008. It didn't resonate during the Obama administration. I'm just thinking that like this, the coverage of this story has been basically we have 12 years to stave off the worst impact, impacts of climate change. And almost everyone that I've like read on this has said that's probably not possible. That doesn't seem like a positive message. I'm sorry, Jigger. This is not the IPC's job 
to to weave some positive message about the greatest wealth opportunity. They should have that in the report if it's realistic and they should have a realistic view of technology change and technology growth. But that's your job. That's a job of business professionals who are in this business. That's a job of advocates and different communicators. The IPCC is there to take stock of the science and to say, hey, we're screwed if we really are screwed, and then let policymakers and others deal with that information in the way that they should deal with it. So that is not up to the IPCC to craft this overly positive, inspirational message. Yeah, I and I would just like to... to 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 turn back to policy. So one thing is we do have to hold our elected officials accountable so that when we go and ask questions at town halls or at events, we have to say, what do you think about climate change? What are you going to do about climate change? And there are some people running for Congress and the Senate who care and who are talking about it and trying to to put it into words that allow people to feel like it's important, but but not to throw their arms up and quit. I also think that if we if we are um, looking at policy in the future, it's going to be really hard to get a carbon tax in place, although that would obviously help pay for some of the spending that we're doing on tax cuts. But I think we can do something in the context of infrastructure. I think that's something everybody can agree to. And with that, we can put in a lot of policies that will help mitigate and adapt to climate change. I think we need to also get people involved. So like having public service announcements that explain what's going on and what can you do to help. Just think about how people aren't using plastic straws anymore. And that's like nothing compared to what we have to deal with. But it was a very quick turnaround change. I think we can still do that. And I don't know if that's by having, you know, like climate bonds that we can sell, like they did Israel bonds, you know, where you can invest, everybody can invest $25. And this goes to helping, you know, support clean energy. I just think there have got to be a ways ways to really tap into grassroots, and I think we do have to do that. And I think people are interested and people care. They just don't know what to do. So we have to ask the right questions and hold our, our um, candidates for all these seats accountable. Yeah. So we need to move on. I'll just finish with this. Um, I know that we disagree pretty vehemently on this, Jigger, but I think that there is a positive message in this report. I think the reason why they deviated from this focus on two degrees C is because they wanted to just at least put the possibility in people's minds that over the next 12 years of mobilization, you truly can prevent even more extreme warming. We are just not ready to give up on optimistic scenarios. Uh, We are counting down the doomsday clock, like for sure. But every tenth of a degree of temperature rise that we can prevent will go a long way. And so with that, I do believe that there's an optimistic tone in this report, despite the dire predictions. The Energy Gang is supported by GE. GE has a new energy storage system called Reservoir. It's a modular lithium-ion system that slashes construction time by up to 50%. You can pair it with solar and wind, use it for microgrids, complement thermal power plants, virtually anything you can imagine. Bob Roddick is a managing engineer at GE. He helped design the system. It's fun to solve problems. He says GE took a Lego approach to Reservoir. And so, you know, we came up with some building blocks based on what we'd done in the past. Bob has solved a lot of problems for customers. He's been with GE for nearly 25 years, joining the company in 1994 after writing his thesis on power reliability. Came into energy, or power at the time, and it was a good fit. And what was your perception of energy storage at that time? 
I didn't have one. Um, I, I knew about pump storage, you know, hydro. This was in the early 90s. Um, we were, I came in working on the world's biggest nuclear power plant. 1356 megawatts, 1540 MVA, four pole machine, a huge nuclear power plant in Japan, and then gas turbine work. Later, he got deep into storage. In 2012, Bob took his engineering talent over to batteries. Today, he works with utilities and developers all over the world to build the next generation of energy systems with reservoir. So you're still in energy storage over there in GE. The switch must have been worth it. Yeah, it, it has been. It's, uh, it's, it's small startup mentality um, compared to a well-established mature business like uh, Power. You know, came over and played the role of the field engineer, the NPI engineer, the proposal engineer, the requisition engineer. So you play all those roles, and uh, you really get exposed to all the elements. With GE's Reservoir, you're not just getting the best-in-class energy storage, you're also getting the best-in-class engineering talent. People like Bob, who know power systems inside and out. Go see the Reservoir system for yourself at ge.com slash energy storage. Let's talk about a major acquisition here in the United States in the offshore wind space. Boy, the Scandinavians are here and they're ready to play for keeps. Orsted, the Danish mega energy company, plans to acquire Rhode Island offshore wind developer Deepwater Wind for $510 million, giving access to potentially thousands of megawatts of projects. Orsted is formerly known as Dong Energy. You know, I'm, tr- <laughs> I'm having trouble keeping up with all the name changes for Scandinavian energy majors. Norway's Statoil recently became Equinor, and Denmark's Dong Energy became Orsted. I guess that's only two, though. So uh, I'm still waiting on Sweden's Vattenfall to change their name. <laughs> but seriously, it could soon be hard to keep up with not just the name changes, but with all the offshore wind activity in the U.S. as these big companies get serious about the market and bring their expertise to our shores. Jigger, remind us who Deepwater Wind is and why Orsted would want to acquire the company. So Deepwater Wind is basically Brian Martin, who's a managing director at D.E. Shaw. I mean, he and I met probably 10 years ago. And, you know, he has been pursuing this, at the time, contrarian strategy of, you know, sort of making small bets in the um, the offshore wind space in the U.S. for 10 years. I mean, that's a long time for a very large sort of private equity company like D.E. Shaw to make a bet. And uh, he's been dripping out money. They built, um, you know, a couple of offshore turbines off of Block Island in Rhode Island. Um, But they've been slowly biding their time to try to figure out how to get more permits and more, you know, sort of um, rights to build these farms. And a $510 million, I don't know how much money he's put into it so far, but $510 million acquisition is probably a huge exit for him. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And Deepwater Wind has been pretty successful. Catherine, recap for us Deepwater Wind's project in Rhode Island and the portfolio it's started to accumulate since. Yeah, so I mean, when I talked to folks up there, they said $510 million sounds like a deal for 800 megawatts of PPAs a Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, BOEM, lease offshore and Block Island, Rhode Island. And and Orsted says they have a capacity of building like 3.3 gigawatts out there. So it's, they haven't, they have not been able to 
um, compete for any of the RFPs for offshore wind up there because their prices were just coming in too high. And it may be that the other developers were coming in aggressively low, but this way they bought their way in. They're in the market now because of this $500 million. And it seems like a good deal. It seems like something they'll be able to work with. Now they're in the market. And um, I think they're going to be doing a ton of development for offshore. I do not know much about what goes into their specific pricing for the bids they put in, uh, for example, on the projects in off the coast of Massachusetts that they were rejected for. Um, but I, we can say broadly that offshore wind is a local game. It requires pretty significant logistics and staging of very uh, expensive high-tech equipment. And so even if you are a global player who can do projects in the North Sea or elsewhere, it still costs a lot of money to bring your operations over here to the United States or any other country and get that equipment up and running. So having a local development partner who both has the equipment staged, has the leases, and understands the policy is really crucial for these global players even if they are super sophisticated. And so because Deepwater Wind had, you know, won bids, they had put a project in the ground, it made sense as an acquisition opportunity. Yeah, and they have 25% of the global market share of offshore wind, so they know how to do this. And fun fact, Dong was called Danish Oil and Natural Gas, and Orsted, they renamed themselves last year after Hans Christian Orsted, who discovered electromagnetism. So that's why they changed their names. But they're, they have been an oil and gas company, and they've divested all of their upstream oil and gas uh, last year, and they say they're going to be completely phasing out all coal consumption by 2030. So they're they're taking big positions on renewables. Yeah, I went to their website just to poke around a bit before this conversation. And their entire website is devoted to divesting from fossil fuels and addressing climate change. A little glimmer of hope after a depressing conversation on the reality of climate change that a major oil producer with such deep history uh, has made a significant change. And then, of course, uh, Statoil, which changed to, uh, what did it change to? Equinor. So they, we had Stephen Bull on the podcast recently, and they are undergoing the same transition. So that's a nice little sign. Back to the offshore wind market here in the United States. Jigger, is this a sign of positive momentum for offshore wind development here in the U.S. I know we have many steps before we get some of these projects in the ground, but does this accelerate the process in any way for some of the bigger projects? Yeah, I think that, you know, for a long time, offshore wind was really expensive. As we know, the last uh, RFP in Massachusetts came in at less than seven cents a kilowatt hour for offshore wind. So now that's becoming quite uh, cost effective. And when you think about the population centers on the East Coast, a lot of them are on the, you know, on the water. And so being able to power these cities directly from offshore wind farms, many of whom have 50, 60 percent capacity factors is, um, you know, really an exciting prospect and frankly essential to being able to decarbonize our grid. I, I don't think it's possible to just decarbonize our grid with, um, uh, on land, solar and wind, just because, you know, the transmission infrastructure is probably not going to get built um, in the continental U.S. to be able to make that work without offshore. Well, I think this shows 
that all of these uh, companies like Enel and NG and Equinor are taking big positions in the U.S. They see that there are a lot of opportunities for renewable energy development, and Orsted is just the latest one. Let's finish up with ethanol. For those who uh, listened to last week's live episode, you'll recall that I asked Catherine what her least favorite renewable energy source is, and she said biofuels. I don't know. Are you, how are you feeling about that one? Yeah, yeah. And and just to clarify, I used to be the co-director of American Bioenergy Association, but I was working to try to promote cellulosic biofuels. And that just has not happened. Everything we do still is corn ethanol. Not all biofuels are created equal. Absolutely. And that is not a blanket dislike of biofuels. I, I think that they're going to play an important role in our fuel mix going forward, probably pretty small, but still important. And uh, as long as we can get to the next generation of cellulosic or maybe even, you know, algae-based biofuels. But we've talked about the problems in that sector enough to know that uh, we're not there and we're probably not close. So, you know, America has this tortured relationship with biofuels. They're a domestic resource. They help farmers when we buy them. It's a good story. They are technically renewable. But Conventional corn-based ethanol is not sustainable in large quantities, and there are big questions over their ability to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So I'm betting President Trump wasn't thinking about that nuanced picture when uh, this week he ordered the EPA to lift a summer ban on gasoline mixed with 15% ethanol. Uh, So let's talk about that ban and why it might be lifted. Um, Catherine, what was likely on the president's mind when he backed the biofuels industry and its push to allow year-round E15 sales? Yeah, so I don't think it has to do with his political philosophy about fuel. I think it had everything to do with Chairman Grassley getting Kavanaugh onto the Supreme Court, and Iowa is the number one state for ethanol. Explain who Chairman Grassley is and his relationship to the ethanol industry, and just help us understand that a little bit deeper. Yeah, he has been a total champion in Iowa for the ethanol industry. They're the number one state, followed by, I mean, by orders of magnitude, followed by Nebraska, Illinois, Minnesota, Indiana, South Dakota. But Iowa is the number one ethanol state. And um, I think there was a solid done for Grassley, and that kind of pushed it over the edge because there were so much opposition from the fuel and petrochemical industries, from Petroleum Institute, and the Enviros. So the folks that really cared about it are the corn growers, the Renewable Fuels Association, the, the those biofuels folks um, that wanted this to be extended all year. And there, there are some real environmental issues around doing that. Um, expanding it to make sure that it that it can also be sold in the summer because of ground level ozone issues uh, associated with those summer months. Yeah, let's walk back to the context a bit. So the renewable fuel standard was created in 2005, and we created standards for blending 10% ethanol with gasoline. There's this higher mix, 15% ethanol with gasoline, uh, very popular in the Midwest, but the EPA does not allow sales of E15 in the summer months. And there's, I think, there, as far as I can tell, the research on this is inconclusive. There hasn't been enough research showing that uh, E15 increases um, air pollutants. It really, the, the concern is around like whether it does damage to engines and tailpipes uh, and makes engines more inefficient and releases more partic- particulate matter. Basically, environmental groups have been calling for more research on this, 
but I've kind of taken a, a skim of all the research, and I can't really tell that there's anything conclusive yet. But still, those concerns over the increase in air pollution during summer months led to this blocking of E15 for a few months out of the year. Um, anything else we should know about like why this was in place and the battle around it? So the National Renewable Energy Lab did a study that shows that 70% of current vehicles and 40% of newer vehicles fail E15 compatibility tests. So those, those vehicles can't even use it. This is really much more for farmers and farm equipment and um, and really for the commodity industry, for the corn commodity. Jigger, your thoughts on this matter? Well, I think it's quite shocking that, you know, Trump, who hates biofuels, literally said that on the campaign trail. Carl Icahn, his biggest backer, hates it even more because he owns refineries, makes a full reversal here. I mean, he had his ass handed to him. Well, I think Catherine's right. Uh Trump wanted to thank Grassley for getting Kavanaugh through. And simultaneously, Trump is dealing with political tension with farmers in Midwestern states who have been getting penalized by tariffs from China over all sorts of agricultural products. So Trump's trade war is having a direct economic impact on farmers, and he wants to be able to continue that trade war while also, you know, throwing something positive their way and saying that he's, you know, working for agricultural communities. There seems to be a two-part political strategy here. I also think this is bad for uh, climate, because I think when you think about the climate negative impacts of corn production and the biodiversity issues and a lot of that stuff around, you know, basically growing way too much corn in this country laced with, uh, you know, Roundup, um, I I don't see how this is good for us. My sense is, is that ethanol played its part. You know, in in some ways, it's kept oil prices down because it, you know, reduced the total amount of oil demand in the United States. And so from that perspective, it could have been economically justifiable. But I think that, you know, that this increasing move to ethanol is going to hurt automakers in some ways, right? I mean, to Catherine's point, a lot of the most optimized engines from a fuel economy perspective are not made to run ethanol, particularly not at 15%. And... In general, my sense is that what could happen is that, you know, the automakers actually have higher costs over time um, around engine design, and it helps electric vehicles beat the the internal combustion engines that much faster. Yeah, I actually don't think it's going to have a huge impact. I, I don't think it's going to really do that much to expand to those three months because it's E15 is not even available in 21 states. So, I mean... I just think this is much more politically symbolic than anything. Agreed. Okay, let's wrap up with some free electrons. Catherine, what's your story this week? Yeah, so the American Council for an Energy Efficient Economy, ACEEE, just released their 2018 State Energy Efficiency Scorecard. And I know that on the last show in New York, I talked about energy efficiency being super important. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stay on that track. Um, there were $8 billion of investment up from $7.6 billion, and the top state is still Massachusetts, with um, California close behind, and then New Jersey as the most improved. Interestingly, our ethanol state, Iowa, is losing ground, and uh, North Dakota, West Virginia, and Wyoming are lagging. Jigger, what's your free electron? So I just wanted to um, head people over to our good friend, Andrew Winston, who's been a... Uh, 
a contributor here on the podcast. He wrote a great piece in response to the IPCC report around, you know, basically saying that the scale of the response is really going to be depend on what businesses do over the next decade. And that matches work that McKinsey has done showing that U.S. corporations have been hoarding over $2 trillion of cash on their balance sheets, and that if they invested that into existing energy efficiency, clean energy, clean transportation, and cleaner supply chain investments that they've already identified, that they could achieve 20% plus returns on investment. So my free electron is a little bit of log rolling. I like to occasionally talk about what we've got going on here at GTM because there's always something new. Um, First of all, Julia Piper, our senior editor, has a new column for GTM Squared, which is our premium service analysis uh, and editorial service. It's called Electric Avenue, and she's going to focus on the future of electric vehicles and mobility and transportation. She is a longtime expert on this. Before she came to GTM, she was covering transportation. And so we're switching from a policy-based focus to an EV focus. And again, it will cover like autonomous vehicles, electric vehicle models, transportation policy, the future of mobility. It's a very cool subject. It dovetails nicely with our focus on you know, how oil and gas majors are thinking about getting into the electricity space and how electric vehicles will impact oil demand. So check out her first edition on the website now, and I hope you'll check out GTM Squared. The second is a podcast, uh, a sponsored podcast that I put together with Wonder Capital this week. It is uh, a profile of three top women in the solar finance space. Two of them are Wonder Capital employees who are executing a ton of deals. In fact, they're doing like tens of millions of dollars a deal every, every month in commercial solar. And it's a profile of what they do. And more importantly, like the issues that they may face as women in this male-dominated space. And it's a reflection on how far the solar industry has come and where it still needs to go, and a very relevant conversation given the moment that we're in and you know the zeitgeist around gender issues. Um, so the big takeaway is like more diverse companies equals more business, and it's just straight up better for business. And I really liked the episode. I had a lot of fun putting it together, and I hope you enjoy it as well. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This is the Energy Gang from Green Tech Media. You can follow us anywhere you get your podcasts. Please, you know, word of mouth is super important. So send a recommendation to your colleagues, your friends, the energy geek in your life. Give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. I've got a ton of new ones, and they're really helpful. We'll catch you next week. I'm Stephen Lacey with Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. We are the Energy Gang. Energy Gang.